Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, and crazy. And may I say, Jim, at the risk of uh, uh, setting expectations too high, really good, really bad, and really crazy today. We are going to the extremes, perhaps, uh, on on some of this stuff. But let's start with the really good, because that's always nice. Uh, The original story here from Bloomberg, which you chronicle in the morning jolt, but it also refers to... Uh, a letter in the New England Journal of Medicine, the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer and Biotech showed a high ability to neutralize coronavirus strains first detected in Brazil, the UK, and South Africa, according to a new study. In lab experiments, the shot demonstrated, quote, roughly equivalent levels of neutralizing activity against the Brazil and UK strains compared with a version of the virus from early last year. It also showed robust but lower activity against the South Africa variant, again, according to a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine. And so, Jim, when these uh, variants were popping up, as variants will do with just about any uh, contagious strain, uh, some folks were wondering if the vaccines would still be quite effective against them. And while I'm sure there's more testing uh, to do since uh, this is relatively new research, uh, the early returns are yes and emphatically yes. Yeah. And look, it feels like you're starting to see, you can almost sense behind the scenes that there's this, if not a battle, then a strong disagreement amongst science writers. And I would point out that while I've been writing about the coronavirus pandemic for going back to last January, um, I don't necessarily consider myself to be a science writer, certainly not a top tier one. And you can see that they have these different viewpoints and there's this irritation amongst some who really get dive into this stuff to feel like there is kind of a a fear mongering tone to the discussion about variants because viruses mutate all the time. And this is kind of an inevitable fact of life. They're not going to stay the way they're constantly encountering immune systems and either being defeated by the immune systems or evolving and, you know, changing and having developing some new ability to make them tougher against immune systems. Two other points that I would point out. First of all, if the Pfizer vaccine works against all of them, super duper terrific. We don't need to worry about this. Then you don't need to constantly live in a, in a state of fear about, oh God, what if I catch the South African one or the UK one? By the way, I noticed that it's you know uh, ludicrous that we are you know using the term Wuhan flu was instantly decided to be a hate crime and you can never ever do that, but it's totally okay to say South African variant, UK variant. <laughs> yes, I've heard those arguments. Yes, it's a ludicrous double standard but I'm going to move on from that. Um, And there's two points it's worth noting. The first is that if, you know, God forbid, one of these variants does prove to be uh, really tough and the vaccines don't work, that are currently on the market don't work against it, Pfizer and Moderna have said they can probably get within six weeks they can develop a booster shot against a variant. Uh, Moderna, in fact, is already working on one targeting the South African version. So it's not going to be another year-long wait uh, until we get you know, a, a vaccine that can work effectively against this. Our ability to develop variant-specific vaccines is you know, advancing really quickly, and it's going to get um, it's going to give us a strong advantage. And there's no reason to think, oh God, there's going to be another variant that comes along and that puts us uh, back to square one again. 
Now, there's a section, the New Yorker has a really good article about this in the most recent issue. You get a certain number of free articles per month, and I think this is one worth spending that free article on. Um, but he, may, he quotes a virologist who says, has you know, done a lot of research on this and says, quote, there's just not a lot of space for the spike to continue to change in ways that allow it to evade antibodies, but still bind to its receptor. You've seen the images of the coronavirus, the green ball with the red spiky things. The red spiky things are what help it kind of um, uh, bond to the other cells and get into it and cause, you know, kind of advance the infection, right? Um, substitutions that allow the virus to resist antibodies will also decrease the affinity for AC, uh, ACE2, which is what allows it to enter the cells. So the short version is it's running out of room. It's running out of its ability to evolve and change in ways that will make it more dangerous. And if you read John Barry's history of the 1919 pandemic, they made this very interesting argument about the concept of evolution and reversion to the mean. And he points out that it's not an ironclad law, but it's more of a recurring pattern, which is that let's say you have a virus and it mutates in a way that makes it really, really virulent, about as virulent as it can get and really, really contagious, about as contagious as you can get, which is kind of what was happening with the, the influenza virus back in 1919. Well, the, the good news is that as, when it gets as bad as it can get, all subsequent mutations are more likely to make it less virulent and less deadly to people. And that's kind of what happened with that particular strain of the, uh, uh, of the influenza virus. That it basically over time, it grew less dangerous because it had run out of room to go in the bad direction. And so eventually all subsequent changes brought it closer to the good direction. We don't worry as much about viruses that aren't as virulent and that aren't as contagious. So short version, there's a lot of good news on the, on the vaccination front, a lot of good news about worrying about the variants. We're not completely out of the woods yet, but um, people really should not be hiding under their beds worrying that uh, they, you know, they can't go out and live their lives once they're vaccinated because they're afraid of the South African variant or any of these other variants floating around out there. Yeah, excellent news because, you know, just a few weeks ago when we were wondering what the effect of the variants would be, Fauci was talking about, well, a few more months for another vaccine for this one. And now you've got, uh, if, if this uh, research proves out to be true, you're not going to need that. Uh, how good is that in, in getting back to normal, hopefully? All right. Well, let's talk about uh protecting not only your health, but protecting your online situation and your data, social media, and big tech, trying to curb your free speech a lot of times by attempting to de-platform speech they just don't agree with. So you could just deactivate all your social media accounts, but in one way, that would be giving them exactly what they want. So instead of letting big tech try to control your speech, why not revoke their right to your data? That's why you should choose to protect your online data by using ExpressVPN. Have you ever wondered how those free to access social media companies make all their money? Well, they do so by tracking your searches, your video history and everything you click on. And then they sell your valuable data. When you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network and the ExpressVPN app could not be any easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone or computer and you're protected. It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy with the VPN you can trust at expressvpn.com martini. By visiting our link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash martini. Expressvpn.com slash martini to protect your data today. 
All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And this one has multiple, multiple layers to it. We're talking about H.R. 1. It's called the For the People Act. And this would be the Democrats' efforts to put a much greater federal role in how elections are run rather than the states deciding how they want to do that. And of course, any opposition to it is described as voter suppression by Democrats and their allies in the media. But that's not exactly what's happening here. Uh, Some folks have done a good job of cataloging all the concerning parts of this. Jared Stepman over at the Daily Signal, part of the Heritage Foundation, has done so. Uh, First of all, it forces states to implement mandatory voter registration, mandates that states allow all felons to vote, uh, forces states to extend periods of early voting, mandates same-day voter registration, I guess, everywhere. Uh, prohibits election observers from cooperating with election officials to file formal challenges to suspicious voter registrations. It criminalizes protected political speech, which I'll expand on in just a moment. There's going to be a uniform federal approach to laws about voting by mail, so the states aren't allowed to make up their own decisions there. Uh, It kills voter ID laws, and it mandates that states adopt new redistricting commissions, meaning uh, that legislatures uh, will no longer have the, the same role that they have had in the past in doing so. Uh, and my guess is that the Democrats have a way of figuring out how to get uh, control of these nonpartisan commissions. When it comes to the free speech issue, uh, Ryan Morrison of the Institute for Free Speech writing over at the Dispatch talking about some of the concerns on that front. Uh, it says that an advocacy group could put out an issue ad and if they just mentioned the name of a member of Congress, Uh, their entire donor list then becomes public, and then you can get uh, your donors harassed, like Joaquin Castro did in his own district in Texas last year uh, by outing the people who supported Donald Trump with financial contributions. Uh, There's also the major concern about the government pouring public funds as matching funds, even beyond uh, the contributions that candidates actually get. So more and more of a federal involvement in this issue. There's a lot of reasons to hate this bill, but another Weird twist here. Uh, the bulwark, supposedly principled conservatives, it's Bill Crystal, Charlie Sykes, and that ilk uh, who went anti Trump and then really haven't come back to conservatism, although they claim they have, uh, put out a big story and they've done several stories about why HR1 is great because they're all part of this pro democracy movement. And uh, so they think this is the way to do it. And that Republicans, by the way, they've acted since the election are all obstructionists and voter suppressionists and so forth. But they must have gotten a backlash or maybe there actually is an opposing viewpoint over there because Sykes actually wrote a column today talking about why he's opposed to H.R. 1 uh, in fairly strong terminology. So, Jim, a lot to dissect here. But uh, by and large, uh, the biggest thing here is it's a terrible piece of legislation that we hope never becomes law. Yeah, and we've reached the point where I just don't trust any Democratic complaint about the voting system. I also don't trust a lot of Republican complaints about the voting system. I think it actually works pretty darn well. But I'll take as just an example. Uh, the state of Iowa just decided to push forward some voting reforms. And here's how NBC, describe, you know, NBC describes it as the Iowa governor signs a Republican bill restricting voting access. <laughs> now, if you read that, you're like, oh my God, some people who could vote before now can't vote? That's terrible. That's not actually what the legislation does. There are, there are three changes that it makes that makes you sound how scary and terrible they are. The first, Greg, is that polls now close at 8 p.m., not 9 p.m. Oof, terrible. An hour, right? You know, now, I, again, does this make it tougher for people to get to the poll? I guess maybe on the margins, you got to, 
you, you know, if you're going to leave after work, leave a little bit earlier or get it done before work. You know, I, I, I cannot really believe that shortening the election day polling hours by one hour constitutes restricting voting access. Also, they're restricting early voting. Now, look, there was a lot of interest in early voting this past year because of the pandemic. People didn't necessarily want to be in a polling place where it'd be very tough to maintain social distancing and things like that. They're restricting the days for early voting from 29 days to 20 days. You still got three weeks. You're going from a month to three weeks. I don't see that as some draconian, authoritarian, scary. How could they do this? This is the end of free elections in America. Look, in a non-pandemic environment, there's three weeks of early voting should be fine. There's really no reason to think that extra month, that extra week is going to uh, make a huge difference. And the third thing is something we, you and I have talked about on podcasts going back to last year. If you have a mail-in absentee ballot, it has to arrive by election day. Instead of the, up until then, it was postmarked before election day. They don't want, I guess they don't want lots of people mailing lots of ballots or trying to stuff the ballot box on that last day or something like that. I have argued I want one clear, consistent deadline for turning in a vote. I don't want a situation where you can turn in all kinds of ballots and then these other group of voters over here, they're allowed to turn in theirs later. I think the, uh, the case for that is self-evident. I think that's a good effort to prevent che cheating and fraud and mischief and things like that. And none of these things that are going on in Iowa strike me as anywhere near restricting voting access, as NBC News calls it. So there's an enormous amount of bad faith into this stuff. So the I don't want to spend an enormous amount of time kicking. By the way, Greg, is it bulwark or bulwark? <laughs> I say bulwark, but who knows? I don't okay, spend a lot of time I, I on that it was site. Bulwark, and it sounds like I'm joking that the the guys over there don't work. <laughs> but oh, really, that's, that's always the way it was pronounced. So this came out, and we're used to the, the bulwark set itself up as being the anti-Trump voice of conservatives, but it was also conserving conservatism from Trumpism and all that kind of stuff. I suspect if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already have a very clear opinion on those guys over there. But the interesting question would be that as Trump departed the presidency and without Twitter, he's making, making a much less pre, you know, consistent presence on the political scene, what was the mission of the bulwark going to be? Could it exist without Trump? And if so, what was its mission and purpose going to be? Well, when you are pushing for HR1, you are not conserving conservatism. <laughs> you are not standing for anything resembling uh, traditional conservatism or the Republican Party or that. You are now full on progressive Democrat, if that's the case. And it was like, I guess I should give credit to Charlie Sykes because. First of all, like lots of times people will find two different authors at National Review who have two different viewpoints on an issue, will run both pieces. And some people say, ha, life comes at you fast. Look at the National Review flip-flopping. It really shouldn't shock you that Jay Nordlinger and uh, uh, Victor Davis Hanson have different viewpoints on a whole bunch of stuff. It shouldn't stun you that Kevin Williamson and Catherine Lopez might have different viewpoints on stuff. Like, you know, we have a lot of writers. We have a lot of guest contributors. And it's not shocking that, you know, that having been said, it was fascinating to see the bulwark, I believe, as their like main article to be. HR1 is terrific and pro-democracy and pro-America, and there are no good legitimate reasons to oppose this. And for Charlie Sykes, almost like the newsletter equivalent of running in yelling, stop, stop, wait. <laughs> Saying, well, actually, no, no, this is actually a bad bill. And this actually does a whole bunch of stuff that we as conservatives can't support in good cause. Like, so on the one hand, Good for you, Charlie Sykes. It takes guts to stand up to your colleagues like that. On the other hand, I have, you know, Charlie Sykes is a pretty big mover and shaker over there. I almost wonder how much the editorial 
uh, chain of command at the Bulwark read through that first piece because it, if it wasn't an official institutional endorsement of it, it certainly looked like one. And it feel and it looks kind of odd for Charlie Sykes to come out the next day and say, "Well, actually, wait a second. Um, no, what's wrong with HR one a lot? And that's a tragedy." It says um, it, it, he, you know, uh, to his credit, he really rips into it, but he also. Uh, has to acknowledge the fact that a whole bunch of his colleagues have written, you know, full-throated defenses of this and pretended like there was no legitimate argument against it. So kind of bad to see some, you know, I'm going to conservatives, and you can see me making air quotes. You can't see me, but just pick, trust me, I'm making air quotes when I say that. Uh, some conservatives making come, coming to bat for this bill and not really thinking through it. I don't know whether it's just reflexive anti-Trumpism that, you know, anything that, uh, Republicans oppose must be good or whether or not actually this is a progressive Democrat publication in in large part now. And, uh, you know, those of us who still think of ourselves as conservatives really don't need to spend much time paying attention to it anymore. Uh, yeah, just talking about the other authors that are full-throated in support of this legislation, uh, Jonathan Last, a Weekly Standard alum, said, quote, the GOP is a revanchist, if I'm saying that right, minority, which is why their only paths forward are geographic leverage and voter suppression, which is why the D's first priority should be expanding voting rights. That's the cornerstone of the pro-democracy movement. So, Jim, it's just amazing between the Lincoln Project and some of the folks over at the Bulwark how principled conservative equals Democrat with a capital D now. Yeah, I guess I just the, the fair question, you, you can complain about the modern Republican Party. There's a lot to complain about. It's got its share of grifters. It's got its share of uh, rabble-rousers and guys who are in it and conspiracy theorists. And, and you know, look, yeah, I'm not, I'm not gonna pretend there's no you know significant problems there. But I think it's fair to ask any institution that has any like conserving conservatism in the title. Like, so where do you oppose the Democratic Party these days? And um, what you doing about it? <laughs> because otherwise you're like, the other thing is like, what distinguishes inst- you know, publications that head in that direction? What makes you different from all the other progressive liberal publications out there? And, um, you know, sometimes it gets pretty tough to, f- to figure out. It is amazing. Although you make a good point uh, following January 6th, uh, arguments from some on the right are going to perhaps not be as powerful as they would have been as this debate goes forward. So we'll see what happens in the Senate based on the filibuster comments from Joe Manchin yesterday. He's looking for uh, a way to wiggle out of his uh, prior commitment and and find a way to get this done. So uh, I, I would have said a week ago that this was unlikely to pass. Now I'm not so sure. And that's definitely bad, too. All right. Well, let's talk about something that isn't bad. Uh, let's talk about a good pillow and the other products from my pillow, because now my pillow giving the same attention that they've given their pillows to their towels and sheets. Right now, three Martini Lunch listeners can buy one get one free on all six-piece towel sets and the Giza Dream Sheet sets. My pillow towels have proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent. They are soft to the touch without that lotiony feel. It's got a ten-year warranty and a sixty-day money-back guarantee. They're washable, they're dryable, and there are seven colors to choose from. The MyPillow Giza Dreams bedsheets are made with the world's best cotton. The sateen weave gives them a luxurious finish and will have you sleeping great. I can attest to that. Also, a 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee. Washable and dryable. Also, a wide variety of colors and sizes. Visit MyPillow.com to learn more. And right now, as I said a moment ago, three Martini Lunch listeners can get all six-piece towel sets and Giza sheets. Buy one, get one free. 
Just use the promo code MARTINI at checkout or call 800-874-0104. That's MyPillow.com, code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104. Buy one, get one free, all six-piece towel sets and Giza Dream Sheets. Jim, our first and third martinis might sound a tad schizophrenic to some, but I believe they are thoroughly consistent today. Uh, we have seen excellent uh, evidence that the vaccines are effective, but should you have to get them? Not should you get them, but should you have to get them? And should you be restricted from engaging in what used to be normal activities if you don't get it? On CNN over the weekend, Fareed Zakaria had Arthur Kaplan, well-known ethicist. Uh, he's at New York University now, and he's been uh, a talking head on a number of uh, key issues over the decades. And they're talking about the issue of vaccine passports. And uh, Kaplan says, yes, they're coming. Yes, they're a good thing because of the freedom that they will provide. Here's how he put it. Well, there is always a danger of a slope. But I think here what's different is... Traditionally, we want to protect health information because if someone finds out you have an illness or a disease, they may discriminate against you. They may penalize you. They may say you can't get a job, you can't get insurance, you can't get disability insurance, you can't get life insurance. With a COVID certification, you're going to gain freedom, you're going to gain mobility, and I'm going to uh, suggest that you're probably going to be able to get certain jobs. If you want to work on a cruise ship, I can't imagine that they're not going to be advertising that everybody who's on the staff and the crew is vaccinated, so come on back. So the difference, if you will, is it, it often is the case that health information, when released, threatens to harm you. In this case, being vaccinated threatens to benefit you. It goes in the other direction. But of course, Jim, if this vaccine passport gives some people, those who have gotten vaccinated, the freedom to do these things, it will also restrict other people from being able to do those same things that they want to do. I think this is a uh, tremendous infringement on freedom, whether it's smart or not, to refuse the vaccine. And also, if the vaccines are quite effective, which they appear to be, the only people at risk are the people who didn't get the vaccine. So why not let them run at their own risk? How do you see this? Yeah, so we've, we've kind of hinted and alluded to this in past episodes of our podcast. And I kind of wanted to hold off until it was a, a real live issue, until you started seeing enough people getting vaccinated um, that it made sense to start having these discussions. Well, I think now we've reached that point. I think we're up to 92 million shots administered. Uh, significant numbers of seniors now have both shots. And, and it's, you know, you're now reaching the point where we've got a chunk of society that is now fully vaccinated, which is great news. But we've also got a you know, larger chunk of society that is not vaccinated yet. And the question is going to be, okay, how do we divvy that up? I'm generally skeptical of the idea of having a vaccine passport. Yes, they give you a card, uh, but if you, you know, for listeners who have uh, already gotten a shot, know this. Those who who haven't, don't. Maybe they have they've seen them. Those little cards they give you, you know, these these are not you know like like real passports. These are not um, uh, you know this, your credit card or your driver's license. These are not the sort of things going to be really tough to duplicate. So the moment having a completed, you know, passport, a little, little, you know, card that says, yes, I've gotten both doses or one dose if you got the, the Johnson & Johnson one, the moment you're allowed to do certain things, say go to a ball game or uh, get on a domestic flight or uh, go to a concert or arena, you know, get into some sort of, you know, crowded location. Well, you're allowed in if you have one of these cards. If you don't, you'll instantly see, poof, a, a black market in fake uh, vaccination cards which is exactly the scenario we don't want to have happen here. The second thing is, 
Um, like how do you enforce it? There's one circumstance, which I guess I believe this makes sense. And that is international travel, because that generally requires a real passport, not just a vaccine passport. And lots of countries have vaccination requirements. Uh, if you've traveled outside of, you know, I guess the US and Canada and you know, Canada, Europe, there are a couple of countries you don't really need any. But if you've traveled any place a couple of years ago when I went to Turkey, they basically turned me into a pincushion. All of a sudden, if you're going to be over there, you got to get this this vaccine, that vaccine, and all of a sudden, you jab, jab, jab. Um, and that's so we're, that's kind of a well-established thing. You know, traveling internationally is a privilege, not necessarily a right. If you want to go into a particular country, you have to abide by their laws, and one of them is going to be we, we need you to get this vaccine. So it's perfectly fine for other countries to say you want to come here. We got to see proof of vaccination. Fine. For, the, for Americans, American citizens in the United States, the you know, restrictions are much less okay. And the moment you give people certain privileges or certain things that they can do with the vaccination card that they can't, you create this incentive and you're going to create people who, um, who are going to want to do this. You're going to create resentment. The other thing is having this discussion when we're at a point where, look, I'm glad we've got 92 jabs into people. I'm glad that it's getting easier. More people I know are saying, oh, my parents have been able to get a shot. My grandparents are getting a shot. I qualify for this category. So I'm in, uh, I'm supposed to get mine in two weeks or something. That's all great. But there are a whole bunch of Americans who can't get them right now. And a whole bunch of Americans who, look, the good news is they're young, they're healthy. The odds of the, of the coronavirus, uh, you know, giving them a severe uh, health uh, impediment, pretty low. Not zero, but pretty low. Um, the moment, though, you say, well, we're going to allow these people to do this and allow those people not, you're going to create instant envy. You're going to tear apart whatever social cohesion we've got left. And you're going to have lots of people you know, creating fake vaccination cards. And look, you don't want the grocer having to check somebody to say, oh, well, you know, you're not wearing a mask. Let me see your card. You don't want train conductors doing it. You don't want cops doing it. You, you don't want to create the vaccination police. That's going to get enormous pushback. It's going to have an enormous backlash. So this is generally a bad idea. The only scenario where I think it makes sense is in international air travel. Yeah, it's just fascinating. It kind of reminds me, I know the circumstances aren't, aren't similar, but it kind of reminds me of uh, the Obamacare individual mandate where you have to get it. And if you don't, you're going to get penalized. That didn't quite result in access uh, issues, in fact, of where you could go and everything. But it did uh, require you to pay a fine or a tax or whatever it was. But uh, anytime the government is telling you you have to to do something or, or you're going to be penalized, uh, that's going to create more skepticism, not less. And I don't think that's where the government wants to go here. And it's not necessarily going to be the government. It could be the private sector, uh, could be uh, businesses, could be whoever, uh, might not be institutions, although I think schools will eventually get there. But when you take that tack, you're going to create more resistance instead of getting more cooperation. I think that's my guess. Yeah. And let's point out that like all of these issues can be revisited. We've seen discussions about whether you need to be vaccinated for schools. Most schools require, you know, a certain number of those vaccines for the most uh, serious and concerning ones. We can go back to this debate and discuss this a year from now. We can have this discussion 18 months from now. And maybe it will be more reasonable to say, yeah, if you haven't gotten a vaccine by now, um, we don't want you doing this because, you know, you're at higher risk or something like that. But at this point, it's a, a you know, it's way premature to even, uh, to, and, and pretty much unjustifiable in just about every circumstance, particularly when so many Americans want the vaccine and still can't get it.
Well, we'll see where this debate goes. Uh, we, we have feared uh, that that might be headed in this direction, and it's still theoretical at this point. I don't know uh, anyone that's actually done it, although we've talked about Ticketmaster planning for that and and uh, a couple of airlines overseas doing the same. So we'll find out just how far it goes, and we'll obviously talk about it if it does. Jim, have a great day as always, and we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Tell your friends about us, too. Uh, We're very grateful for those five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Uh, We also invite you to get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday, and we'll see you again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.